Well, good to see all of you this morning. So glad you're here. I have to admit this. You may not know this, but it bothers me tremendously when any of you are missing on Sunday morning. It does. And I want you to know that. Come on in, lady. This is the only lady with two first names. Well, come on in, y'all. Good to see you. Do y'all know who these ladies are? Okay. Who's the lady in green who's just sitting down? Huh? Amali. Amali. And who's the lady over there who's just trying to sneak in behind everybody? Hmm? What? Caitlin. Trin. T-R-I-N. I don't always get it right. And I want you to know this. And I really want you to know it. When any of you have a family gathering. And one of your children are not there. Or you know someone who should be a part of the. Is a part of the family. Should have been there. You love them. How many of you genuinely do miss that person? So when I say I missed you. I really mean that, Lisa. I really, really mean it. I do miss you. Because for me, this is quintessentially not just a group of people coming together and hearing a lecture or two, learning a couple of things. This to me is, if you would, my family. That's how I feel about it. And I genuinely miss you. I want you to know that. And sometimes what happens to me is this. Rather than saying, how you doing this morning? How are things happening? Everybody know Moose? Remember Ronnie the third? I forget and I say, I missed you. And I realize I probably should have said, hi, nice to see you this morning. Are you okay? Yeah, thank you. I missed you. So I want you to understand that because I don't want you to be put off by that. I really do miss you. Well, let me, let me amend that. A couple of you I don't miss that much, but whatever. <laughs> Everybody's waiting for the other shoe to what? To drop, right? So, AJ, take it with a grain of salt when I say I miss you. Oh, so good to see you. Really mean it. Good to see you. Pam, she's over here. This is Pam. There she comes. Mozart looking for her daughter, Ray or Rachel. This morning we're continuing with our study of the attributes of God. And today we're going to talk about two of the most challenging ones. And here's the problem that at least I face as a teacher. And any of you who have taught know how this is. In a short period of time, because we don't have six weeks on every attribute. In a short period of time, and Matt and I have discussed this. How much do you say and how much do you 
not say. What is relevant minimally and foundationally for the class to hear? And it's not that other things are not relevant, but at least not immediately. I can't get my word forth, but I think there are levels of relevancy. And so when we talk about anything of God, there's going to be a massive volumes and volumes of what could be and actually should be shared and all kinds of implications and questions. Haven't you noticed that already? There they are over there, Eddie. There it is. And so, for instance, with immutability, well, if God doesn't change, how does he change his mind? So today for sovereignty... We're going to go right over the thin ice, uh, I mean over the top of the ice, but the ice is very thick, skim right over the top. And there are going to be questions all over the place. It's not that you shouldn't have them. You should have them. Hopefully the Holy Spirit will generate questions in you. But we won't be answering them. Why? Because it's not the scope of the class to answer every question. It's the scope of the class to kind of give a, what, what do you call that when you do a, a real quick, an overview. Thank you, Kay. An overview. A thin overview. And so I will say this about sovereignty. The question that should come into your mind, which we're not going to talk about that today, the answer. How sovereign is God? That's a question that plagues theologians, that books have been written about. But I don't want to talk about that today. And I already say it in the beginning. Because what's going to come up in your mind is this. What does this mean about this, that, and the other? So maybe I shouldn't have said that, but I did, and here we are. So let's talk about God's sovereignty. Remember, we've already talked about God's aseity. What does aseity mean? Self-existence. Aseity means that when there was nothing anywhere whatsoever, nothing existed, God is. Don't say God was. God is. And out of nothing, God created everything. Right? So we talked about his aseity. We've talked about omniscience. What does omniscience mean? Hmm? He knows absolutely everything. There's nothing about himself nor about anything of the creation that God does not know comprehensively and immediately. It isn't that he's going to find out, Claudio. He knows immediately and comprehensively everything about our lives as we live today, as we have lived, and as we will live. Not only is God omniscient, he's also what? Omnipresent. Okay, let's take that one next. What does that mean? God is everywhere, fully, completely, comprehensively. There is no place in all the creation where God is not. And remember, Matt talked about that as a basic 
But then there is the relational presence of God that he's with his people differently than he is with his non-people. So do it like this. How many of you have children? Okay, fine. How many of you are relationally with your children differently than you are with the rest of the people in the neighborhood, although you live in the neighborhood? Right? It's different. And again, anytime we give an example, there's always fault with it. Then what's the third omni? Omnipotent. God's power. Can God do anything at all whatsoever? No. God can do and does anything whatsoever in keeping with his character. Right? God cannot do something that is in contrary, Don, to who he is and his being and his own character. So we saw the scripture the week or two ago, what? God cannot lie. God cannot steal. He cannot do these things. And then the, I think it was the fourth one, is it? Are we on number four now? Fifth one, whatever. Immutability. What does that mean? God in himself does not change. So here is an immutable God, an immutable God. It's impossible for him to change. That, that means this, God cannot develop. God cannot think a new thought. <laughs> Do we get that? There's no such thing as a new thought in God. Absolutely who God is today, he is tomorrow, he has been. This is the way God is. He's absolutely, as far as change is concerned, static within himself. There's no such thing as change. But here's the challenge for us. God, who is immutable, has created a mutable world in which... He acts in a way that ministers his immutability in the midst of mutability. <sighs> now, don't ask me to repeat that. Don't do that. <laughs> Somebody said, oh, could you repeat that? I will have to say this, Michael. You have to get the tape. And so when we understand that, we begin to realize, oh, I understand. That's why God can seem to change his mind when he's actually changing his mind and yet remain immutable in his person and as to his essential purpose, right? Is everybody with me on that? Is everybody okay? Today, I want to talk about sovereignty, and I know it's taken me a little while to get there. It's so typical of me. Matt has a better handle on himself than I have on myself. We want to talk about the sovereignty of God. This is one of the challenging ones. How many of you are personally challenged by the fact that God knows everything? I mean, that's a real challenge to you. Man, how many of you are personally challenged that intellectually, but relationally, experientially challenged by God is he is. Okay. 
that God is all-powerful. How many, man, that's a challenge for me. But today and next week, we're going to get into a couple of the attributes that become experientially and even intellectually challenging for us, differently intellectually than the ones we've been through. Because the ones we've been through kind of don't touch us on a daily basis. But when we come to God's sovereignty, Ronnie, that's where. (laughs) You mean to tell me that when this happened, Dennis, God was sovereign? You're going to actually tell me that? Are you, are you with me this morning? God's sovereignty is a major challenge, even for his people. Now, let's, let's, let's be truthful. How many of us, maybe even at least once to a little bit, ever had a problem with God's sovereignty? Come on, come on, come on. Something has happened in your life. Someone did something, said something. You were not able to get something. You wound up, whatever it is. And you were a little, hmm. And Flo, what did you say? God could have what? Changed it because he is sovereign. And if he didn't change it, and since he didn't change it, I wonder... If God is that sovereign, are you you with me? Shane, you got that? You know how that is? Yeah, you've had that. Steve, you've had that. Bogdan, you've experienced that. Rosa, you've been there, haven't you? There have been things in your life that God's sovereignty bounced against. What in the world is going on around here? You did do purple, didn't you? Good for you. Purple was here the other day without purple in the hair, and I didn't recognize him. To say that God is sovereign affirms that sovereignty is an intrinsic characteristic of God's nature. That God cannot be God if he is not absolutely, completely, and comprehensively sovereign. That God possesses in his being the supreme right and ability to create and to govern all of his creation all the time. Where is the first time we are witnesses or see or hear about the sovereignty of God? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Somebody say something. I can hear a lot of whispering, but yell it out. Tara, say it again. I like this. Y'all know Tara Mackey? Okay, I like her. Well, I like you more right now because you had the answer, you see. This is an increasing, growing like. (laughs) Think about it. Now, think about it. Think. Liam, think. If God weren't absolutely, comprehensively, immediately, in his own being, sovereign, 
could he have created what he created? Just Genesis 1-1 should say something to us about the extent of God and the ability of God's sovereignty. And where does God get his sovereignty? Where does he get it? Now, be careful of trick questions. Where does he get his sovereignty? Carrie, where does he get it? That's a good answer. I like that. Let me come over here. You see, Carrie knew the answer before I said it. Where did he get it? From himself. From himself. God doesn't get sovereignty. He is sovereign. Do you see how, why we need to say it these ways? Because our terminology often belies the truth. It kind of weakens the reality. God is sovereign. That means there's nothing anywhere at any time for any reason that in any way is able to overcome the sovereignty of God. Where God's sovereignty does not rule absolutely. Now, when I say that, how many of you begin to have questions? Right? What about Katrina? And I don't mean the lady who lives down the street, right? What about Katrina? How many of you, how many of us suffered as a result of Katrina? Not, not the rest of you? How many of you actually suffered because of Katrina? You, you property damage and what? Yes, all of us, um, if you were here. How many of you weren't even here for Katrina? Well, read the book. What was one of the primary questions out of Katrina? Do you remember? Say it again. Where was God's sovereignty? If God is sovereign, why didn't he? Come on, come on. Stop it. If God is sovereign, why doesn't he? But you see, what we fail to remember and what this reveals about us is that sovereign, God's sovereignty is an attribute but doesn't function independently of his other attributes. You see, that question, where is God's sovereignty? Why did, forgets that God's sovereignty functions within the context of all of his other attributes. And I think that's a major lesson, hopefully, that is coming out of this class. To say that God is sovereign means that God's personal right to rule that his personal right to rule is completely free of any external constraints or limitations of any kind at any time whatsoever so what does that mean is there anything about us that requires God or forces or manipulates God to do a certain thing. No. Nothing in the creation. Whenever. Why ever. However. Has any ability. To in any way. Affect. Even to the most minuscule way. God's sovereignty. Everything that God does. And everything that he says everything about anything about God's work 
is a result of his own personal sovereign nature. Correct? So let's begin to remember this. That if I read my Bible tonight, God may do something for me tomorrow that I need him to do. How many of us have ever done these things? Come on, come on, come on. It's okay. We feel that if we can act or do something in a particular way that might hopefully please God, that will encourage God to do what? To be nice to us, to bless us. Isn't that right? Can that happen? So why does God bless you? Because he blesses you. And it is his nature and will to do so. Is there anything in me or in you that causes or moves God to have to bless us? Did you hear what I said? To what? Have to bless us. Are there things in us that elicit God's blessings? Yes. Why? Because he's blessing because he wants to bless us. But there's no such thing as God having to do something. So here's what I want to do. I think it's in your notes. As I've already said, we must remember that God's, God exercises his sovereignty within the context of his other assay attributes. So look. Therefore, God's sovereignty is, is this in your notes, an omnipotent sovereignty? Is that in your notes? All right, look where I am. God's sovereignty is an omnipotent sovereignty. What else? It is an omniscient sovereignty. It is an omnipresent sovereignty. It is an immutable sovereignty. Does that help you to begin to understand the extent of God's sovereignty a little better. So I've rewritten that this way. I felt this is what the Lord gave me. This means that God's sovereignty is absolute. Omnipotent, you see, absolute power. Is comprehensive, omniscient. You, you see the relationship of the words immediately and without variation. That's the sovereignty of God. So listen to some of these, these verses. And let's hear who this God is in this particular area. 40, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God. There is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. Now, that should, for believers, be encouraging. Because why have we been saved? We have been saved according to the unilateral sovereign will of God, for the purpose of bringing glory to him because we are now the corporate expression of his glorified son, correct? And so, now that God has saved us, 
is God sovereignly able to keep us saved? Yes or no? Yes. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight. The Lord rules over the nations. 66, 7. God rules by his mighty, by his might forever. Let me, let's go down to uh, Romans 8, 28. What does Romans 8, 28 say? And by the way, it's written two different ways. And the Greek can bear both. For we know that all things work together for the good. I don't like that verse. This is the way I like to say it. Because this is where I think it should be said. For we know that God. God. Works in all things or works all things for the good. For whom? For those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, can we trust that? Why? Because you see, if God knew all things and whatever, except from power, whatever, if he's not sovereign, it may not work. His will to save you, Lisa, may not be able to be done because of his lack of sovereignty. You see, because God is free within himself. But the real question that floats around here, and I'm going to actually ask it, Matt, to put it out there. Is God's sovereignty subject to my decision? Do we understand that? Did I say it okay? So God is the only one who has what? Yeah, but what are the two words I'm looking for? Say it again. Free will. God is the only one who has free will. What does that mean? I wasn't going to do this, but I just feel to do it. What does it mean? God is the only one that has free will. We don't. But what does it mean? God is the only one who has free will. What is the operative word here? Free or will? Well, we know God has a will. So what is the operative word? Free. You see, Ken, what's the operative word? God has free will. Now, What is free will and what does it mean, free? Free what? What does it mean? God's will is the only will that is completely and absolutely, I said this in the beginning, free of anything, any constraint, any external thing, any activity, anything at all from encumbering his will. Do we get that? Do we have that kind of free will? Do we or not? When you make a, a decision, whenever you make a decision to eat that chocolate ice cream, that pecan pie, are you, is your will free from anything at all? Or is your will being tantalized, beckoned, wooed, 
You know what I'm talking about? Stroked. So that external thing from you will be able to get you to want it. And the wanting, if it's strong enough, will get you to eat it. Is anyone in here, do any of us have a will that is free from any external constraint? Anybody? So, do we have free will? Come on. Do you understand that? Does everybody understand what I just said? Do we have free will? Do we or not? Now, I know what's going on in your head. Well, what about it? And you begin to go down the other categories. We don't, we're not going down that right way. We may have to do it one day, and I'll let Matt do that. He wants to do it. And he has taken Evan May's place, and he knows all the answers, so I'm not going to have to worry about that. So one day, when Matt's up here, you ask him. That's the joy of having a microphone. Seriously. There's a huge divide and debate in Christianity between that group that believes that man's will is not free in relation to seeking God. And the other group thinks it is free to some extent. But the problem is the word free. We have to make sure we understand. So the word free will, where is it used in the Bible? The word free will, where is that used? Only where? In the Old Testament. No such thing as free will. No such thing as terminology in the New Testament. It's not there. Search it. Free will is always associated with offerings. The sacrificial offering, free will offering of grain, free will, you know, bring your free will offerings. In other words, God says, in this particular case, this offering, you are not obligated to do it. You are free to do it or not to do it. Correct? But essentially, are we free in the essence of the word? At least let's make sure we get that part down and allow God to be the only one who is actually free to do according to his will whatsoever in keeping with his character and know that our will is not free. It can't be. You know, it, you know, we live in a world that is always bombarding us with issues, circumstances, desires, fears. And so the issue whether we are free to be able to search for God on our own or not is another issue, maybe for another day. Have I helped you this morning? The emphasis, again, is this. God is the only one who's free. Let me read this one, and I'll get right with him. And that's a pedagogic tool to say, forget him. Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things according after his own will. God is sovereign. Ben, you have a question or you're just waving. Can all y'all hear Ben? Okay, loud Ben so I can hear you. 
Well, there, okay, God has free will, which means that he is free from anything external to himself to have to make a decision or do something. Nothing, there's nothing that motivates God beyond himself. You see, Dan, God does what he does because of who he is. For instance, you know the classic statement, why does God, why does God love you? And he tells Israel in chapter 7, remember, verses, what is 7 and 8, I think. Here's why God loves you, and here's why God loved Israel. I loved you because I love you. What? I love you because I love you. Why does God love us? First John chapter 4, verse 8, or verse 16, that's the answer. Why does God love us? Because God is love. He sovereignly chooses to settle his love upon us. God is free to do everything according to his character and his purpose. But we are not because we're bound by this world. Maria, don't you feel that? There's certain things that I would, I think I'm going to take a chance here. There's certain things you would like to say, but you just don't because of, hmm, right? There's sometimes language I may want to use, but Maybe I shouldn't. There's some things I may want to say to somebody, but what? I'm constrained. My will is constrained. Next week, we didn't get to it today. We're going to talk about the holiness of God. And this is where the rubber hits the, meets the road. This is the problem. The problem with God and us is that he's holy. So the question next week will be, and I think you may see, I don't know if it's in your notes or not. How can a holy God have fellowship with an unholy people and remain holy? And that will take us also then into the next attribute, which is God's righteousness, which is the activity of solving, if you would, that problem. So thank you so much for being here.